On July 8th, 1741, a group of pastors walked into a town. And a spiritual awakening was taking place in the nation and became known as the Great Awakening. Revival spread through all of New England with thousands upon thousands coming to faith in Christ. Ian Murray says, As spring passed into summer 1741, no one could well keep track of the number of places which were also witnessing the revival. Churches, which in some cases had been cold and dry at the beginning of the year, were transformed before the end. It's astonishing, wrote one pastor, to see the alteration that there is in some towns where before it was but little appearance of religion. As the pastors entered the stuffy church on a hot Saturday morning, the people of Enfield, Connecticut, were, as one participant later recalled, thoughtless and vain. By comparison with other towns at the time, the people there were not even showing any particular interest, let alone a great passion regarding the things of God. In fact, they hardly conducted themselves with common decency. This was not an auspicious beginning. There was no atmosphere of readiness and seriousness, nor even normal, polite attentiveness. After stepping behind the pulpit, Jonathan Edwards started a sermon that he did not finish. Such was the impact of his preaching that the people listening shrieked and cried out, and the crying and weeping became so loud that Edwards was forced to discontinue the sermon. Instead, the pastors went down among the people and prayed with them in groups, and many came to a saving knowledge of Christ that day. That sermon was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's one of the most famous sermons in American history. And and in fact, when I was in high school, one of our literature books was the Norton Anthology of Literature. Does anybody remember that book? Fat green book. (laughs) Among the works of Shakespeare, Poe, Milton, and Mark Twain was this sermon. And it was printed on the pages of that same book. I remember going through it in one of my English classes. What moved people so powerfully was Edward's description of the judgment of sinners by a just and holy God. In short, he introduced them to fear. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The Bible speaks of appropriate fear. We've heard fear not. We've heard fear the Lord. But when the Bible speaks of appropriate fear, it means either fearing God or not fearing man. And it's mentioned 400 times in 385 verses across the scripture. In Proverbs 1.7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. R. Michael Allen says, When we read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it is not primarily saying that the fear of the Lord is the first step, or it's somehow the moment of inception, as if it's something you do, and then you move beyond. 
Rather, it's speaking to the fear of the Lord being the foundation, the ground, the ongoing route of wisdom. So this question has been asked, what does it mean to fear the Lord? This question has been asked over and over and over and over again. I'm sure most, if not all of us, have wondered, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Ronnie made, uh, made mention of it. The Ancient Hebrew Research Center says it this way, and, and when I was trying to, to look up the best way to describe the fear of the Lord, I know what I had heard, I know what I would read, I know what other authors had said, but I never actually listened to what the Hebrew language experts from Hebrews had to say. What actually Jewish scholars from their own culture said, as opposed to what, uh, what religious scholars outside looking in um, to the Hebrew language had to say. So they said, fear is an abstract concept. But the Hebrew words translated as fear have a more concrete definition behind them. The first root that we'll examine is pahad. In this verse, the word fear is a noun. Pahad meaning shaking, while the word shake is a verb, meaning to shake. And this is what Job dealt with, what he described when he talked about fearing the Lord. He was shaken. So in another uh, Hebrew word, it's yara. And in Genesis 3.10, it says, And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I feared, yara. I feared because I was naked, and I hid myself. And this term of fear is something what we would generally understand as fear. We understood why, um, why Adam was afraid. We understood that sense of fear. I was, uh, I don't want to say I was rebellious as a kid, but I was rebellious as a kid. And I know that sense of fear when I would hear the garage door opening. <laughs> Please tell me I'm not the only one who knows that, who knows that feeling. I remember. I never knew what kind of mood my dad was going to be in. Um, I never knew what teacher would call him. I never knew what uh, chore I should have gotten done but didn't um, or did halfway. I did it my way instead of his way, as the term goes. So I never knew what I was facing when he came home. So I know that sense of fear. And this is the fear um, in, uh, from that term, yara, and it's, uh, it's the one that is expressed there. However... We see the same Hebrew word in Deuteronomy 6.13, you will revere Yahweh. You will revere, fear, you will revere Yahweh, your Elohim, and you will serve him, and in his name you will swear. So, that other word, Yara, this was one of the ones that, uh, that I, I'd never quite been able to grasp, because here's the thing, when I would go and look up the different Hebrew words for fear, they all had multiple meanings, but the same definitions. Any of you that's done Hebrew and Greek study and try to see what it said, um, you, you may understand what I'm talking about. They all said revere, they all said awe, and they all said terror. So when I came across what, um, what the Hebrew Research Center was talking about, then it gave me a different sense. And this, this uh, paragraph explains it in a way that I never could have just reading 
um, otherwise and seeing what other scholars had to say because they were coming from a Hebrew culture standpoint in their own life, in their own um, childhood, and in their own family heritage. And it says the literal concrete meaning of yara is a flowing of the gut. Flowing of the gut, which can be applied to fear or reverence. Have you ever been so scared or been in the presence of something so amazing that you could feel it in your gut? This is what this word talks about. It says this feeling is the meaning of this word. The Hebrews were a very emotional people, and in many cases their words are describing a feeling rather than an action. I remember uh, Dr. Reese was my, uh, was my New Testament professor. And, um, and he, at times, as he, would, uh, as he would teach the class and we would talk about different things, then um, he would also talk about um, the difference in the Hebrew and Greek culture. And the Greeks, you know, we get the term stoicism from the Greeks, right? Um, they were very, I don't want to say rational, but they were very rational, as opposed to the Hebrews being very emotional, and I remember what Dr. Sprinkle, my, uh, my professor in Psalms, uh, my Psalm professor, uh, said about the reason Psalms are broken up the way they are. He said a lot of times you'll see the Psalms, and he pointed out several Psalms, and, uh, and, and they're alphabetical. Each verse is a letter of the alphabet, and they go alphabetical. And he said the reason they did that is because they were expressing their fears and their anxieties and their worries. And if you go and you read through Psalms, there's a lot in comfort, but there's a lot of everybody's after me. And he said, Dr. Sprinkle said, so when they got to the end of the alphabet, they had to stop. It didn't matter what else they wanted to say, they had to stop. That was the end of the alphabet, so they were done. So that's how a lot of times they would express themselves. And, and I remembered as I was uh, looking at this and, talk, and, and I read this, this sentence where he said, there are very emotional people, and in many cases their words are describing a feeling rather than an action. So we look at Proverbs 9, verse 10, and it says, The fear yira of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. And then the author of this, um, of this study said, What flows out of the gut of Yahweh? What flows out of the gut of Yahweh? His teachings and his character. And this is the first time I'd read this. So I'm still trying to process through exactly what this means. When he's talking about the fear of the Lord, it is an overflow of God's character. It is who God is, what he teaches and what, he, and, uh, and, and what his character, how he reveals himself to us. So he says, the flowings, the teachings, the Torah, the character Ruach of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. The ability to distinguish between good and bad and an intimate relationship with the special one is understanding. So this verse, it says, um, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He says it's the teachings and the character, teachings and character of God as he reveals himself to us that leads to our understanding and it leads us to an intimate relationship. For the last several messages, Randy has spoken about God's relationship with people. And we know that what God wants for us is a relationship. That's why he created man. 
He wants that relationship. And in order for us to be able to have that relationship, there has got to be a fear of the fear of God. There's got to be God revealing himself to us and us responding to that so that we can understand, so we can have that intimate relationship. That is where understanding comes from. How many atheists and agnostic Bible scholars have no concept of what God really wants to do with us? They can tell you what the Hebrew word is or the Greek word. They can look up history and uh, archaeology, and they can talk about history and all these different things. But you'll listen to them, very intelligent people, very smart people, but they just totally miss the entire picture as God has revealed himself in his word. And it is because there is no special intimate relationship that leads to their understanding. Would you agree that you have encountered people like that where you're like, where does this even come from? And these are people that are smarter than me, more well-studied, but it just seems off, a lot of the stuff they say. And the reason is because there is no fear of God. There is no connection to how God actually reveals himself, how, he, um, how <laughs> the character of God flows from him into those who are listening and searching and seeking so that they can have that relationship and they can gain that understanding. In the New Testament... The Greek word for fear is phobos, which means to frighten or to terrify. And one of the key verses it's important for us to grasp onto when we talk about the importance of the fear of God is Matthew 10, 28. And in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body and hell. Yes, Jesus talks about hell. And he says, show some fear. Rather than being afraid of, the, of people who can hurt the body, but can't do anything to the soul, fear the one who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. We are missing the fear of God. Look at our churches. The churches with rainbow flags. Hearing, I'll use quotes because I don't like to use the term pastor or priest or Christian clergy with some of the people that are out there proclaiming that. Untouched by the Spirit of God and the blind leading the blind. Our Michael Allen says, The fear of the Lord... That's the beginning of wisdom is that God-centered focus. Wherever we may be, whatever circumstance we may be living, whether it be happy or sad, whether it be life or death, that we would be mindful of God and his presence, that we would be attentive to his word and its promises, that we would remember that he is always the most interesting character in the context. All of us here have gone through hard times. Some are going through a very, very difficult time right now. Who is the focus? Is it your boss? Is it your bank account? Is it your disease? Name anything and put it against God. And if God is the focus, he will bring everything else into its rightful place. And I tell you that from a standpoint of what is true, not what is easy. 
I recognize the reality that I'm not always great at this either. I'm just not. I get distracted. Shiny thing. But this is one of the things that is important for us to understand that with the fear of God, we are mindful of His presence, we're attentive to His Word and His promises, we remember that He is always the most interesting character in the context. I was listening, and I'll mention his name again, Todd Friel, who is an evangelist, and, uh, and he has a radio program, a YouTube channel, and a ministry that, uh, that he does personal evangelism and street witnessing, and he goes to college campuses and sets up a microphone, he goes to state fairs, and he will um, invite people to come and ask questions, and he will get into conversations with them with a crowd watching, sometimes silently, usually heckling. And he, he talks about the reality of there is a way, right? And that way is Jesus. There's one way to heaven. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So people come in and say, well, what about this truth and this truth? And if I have my truth and you have your truth, and he says, no, no, there is no your truth and my truth. Something is either true or it's not true. Ravi Zacharias says, um, truth by its very nature excludes Someone once asked him, is it just for God to only provide one way to heaven through his son Jesus? And Ravi says, um, it's kind that he provides any way to heaven. So when we talk about the fear of God, we talk about fearing the Lord, making him the center of our life, recognizing that in context it is him versus everything else. So when somebody asks this question about uh, world religions, he says, no, no, no. He said, you can have um, Buddha and Confucius and Muhammad. You can have uh, all these different religions, the Hindu gods, the pagan gods, witchcraft. But you can't put any of those in the same boat as Jesus because Jesus says, no, those are all wrong. So you have to decide. Any of these is fine. If that's what you want to do, they're all wrong. But any of those is going to overlap with any of the other ones. But you can't choose Jesus and another. They're nowhere near the same pool. So Jesus, either Jesus is true, they're true, or none of it's true. But it cannot be Jesus and other religions. It can't. Because if you trust Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, he says there is no other way. It is easy and it's even comfortable for us to think that we should not fear God because we've heard over and over and over and over again how much God loves us. Maybe sometimes we have loved the fear out of each other. In the addiction circles, that's called enabling. Have you ever thought about anybody enabling your bad theology? Have you enabled somebody else's bad theology? Have you loved them to the point that there is no need for them to fear God? Have you ever been loved that way? Has your fear of God been weakened by the soft love of other people telling you it's okay, it's okay, that's not so bad, that's okay? Look at Ezekiel 18.20, it says this, it says, The soul that sins shall die. 
The soul that sins shall die. Not may, not might, shall, which means will. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. If you are here, and you're under the impression that your parents' faith or your brother's faith or your friend's faith is going to save you as if they're on their way to heaven, you can grab onto their coattails or hold their hand and, God, and it's like me and one. It's not a you plus one invitation to heaven. The wicked will be held accountable for their wickedness and the righteous will be held accountable for their righteousness. That's what Ezekiel says. The soul that sins shall die. Death is coming. So make no mistake, we're all accountable for our sins. God, in his justice, and he is a just God, he must punish sin. Justice demands it. Justice demands it. You may say, well, I'm not that bad. I'm a good person. Romans 3 9 through 20. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world, the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Another way to put this, is that the law was never intended to save us. The law was intended to make us aware of our need for a Savior. Do you understand? Do you understand that you cannot be good enough, you cannot do enough, you cannot try hard enough, your attentions can't be good enough to make your way into heaven because you have worked really hard? That's exactly what Ephesians 2 tells us. That it is by faith we've been saved. By grace we've been saved through faith. Why? So nobody can boast. Have you ever thought about that? None of us get a pin or a medal or a ranking when we walk through the pearly gates. We all got there because of the work of Christ. See, the scripture says none of us are good. It doesn't say none of us are good enough. It says none of us are good. So when you say, I'm a good person... What measurement are you using? Compared to who? Compared to Hitler? Compared to your next door neighbor? Compared to the person who 
uses harder drugs than you do. Look for yourself at the Ten Commandments. Let me ask you this. Have you ever dishonored your parents? Have you ever lied? Have you ever looked at someone with lust for them in your heart? Have you ever hated your neighbor? We're lawbreakers. Have you ever stolen anything? Something small? A pen from work? Lawbreaking is what we do. So when you say I'm a good person, that's not true. You might think it. That would just make you wrong. I love you, and that's why the truth is coming out. I told you as we started to join with me in holding up the mirror of the word. But Art, you might say, my sin isn't that bad. There are a lot of people worse than me. Matt Friel again discusses this. He says, we think lying isn't a big deal. So what happens if I lie to my child? Nothing. What happens if I lie to my wife? Okay, now trouble's starting to stir up, isn't it? What if I lie to my boss? Potentially getting fired? Potentially homelessness? See, the consequences are a little bit deeper now. What if I lie to the government? IRS? Court? Congress? The consequences are deeper. They're not based solely on the seriousness of the offense, but rather on who it offends. We can say my sin isn't that bad, but does the offended party, God, see it the same way? So imagine what happens if I lie to a king, especially one who is also a righteous God. In our imperfect and corrupt justice system, if you commit perjury, it can be a five-year prison sentence. So imagine if you lie under oath once a month, every month for 25 years. That's 1,800 years in prison. So imagine if you were caught for every sin you committed and stood before a perfectly just judge who flawlessly upheld the law. Every sin you ever committed. And you had to stand before a perfectly just judge. You may say, well, my sins aren't that bad. God's going to uh, cut me some slack. Can I, tell, um, can I clarify something with you? The only people who want a corrupt judge are the guilty. Have you ever thought about that? And let's make, it, let's make it clear here. Nobody commits one sin. Right? It's habitual. Our sins stack up constantly. They constantly stack up. More and more, they constantly stack up. Psalm 711 says, God judges the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked Every day. You ever heard that? 
Never thought about that, that God judges the righteous and he's angry with the wicked every day. Angry with the wicked every day. So at this point, maybe you think I'm harsh and unloving for speaking of judgment. Maybe you're saying, what about these people who don't know about Jesus or these people who have never heard his name? Well, Peter tried that. That's not exactly how the conversation went, but I think Jesus' response is probably pretty similar to how he responded to Peter. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he had a private conversation with Peter, and it's recorded in John 21. And after Jesus spoke with them, Peter saw John approaching, and he asked, what's going to happen to John? Now listen to Jesus' response. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. I don't know that Peter was necessarily trying to distract Jesus from his conversation with him. But we do the same kind of thing all the time. How many times have I heard conversations, you're trying to get conversations, when you start talking to somebody about spiritual things, and they throw up an objection, then another objection, another, another objection, another objection. They continue to throw them up until you're, you're either trying to stay on track, and they don't want to hear it, or they pull you off track, and they flood you with so many questions so that they can avoid the truth of the issue. Not just in spiritual or religious things, but in any number of things. How many fights have you had with your spouse where you begin to say something? And another thing. But when Peter pointed the direction of Jesus off of him onto somebody else, Jesus essentially said, don't worry about that. That's my business. You have to follow me. When Christ speaks to us about repentance, he says, you have to repent. It is you I'm talking to. I've told you guys about the, um, about the comedian who, um, who talked about the, the hand dryer in the bathroom. He went into a restaurant and saw this hand, the hand dryer on the wall, and he washed his hands, and he turned to the hand dryer, and, uh, and it said on there, employees must wash hands before returning to work. And somebody had written, especially you, Ricky. Now, his question was, who is Ricky, and how is he involved in my supper? But here's the reality. Here's how this ties in with this. The sermon, the Word of God, that's coming to you week after week, in your private time reading, in the devotions that you read, when anybody is preaching, whatever podcast you listen to that brings the Word of God, your, uh, your daily reading, your, your audio, audible Bible, or whatever that, that comes through, any time that Word is coming, that is the sign to the general public. This is the Word of God. This is what Jesus said. This is where Paul went on his journey. This is what he preached. This is the experience. But the Holy Spirit gets to the point at just the right time and says, especially you. This is for you, right here. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> We've been there. I've been there a whole bunch of times. So Jesus' response is the same um, to us as when we try to distract them and say, yes, but God, what about these? What about this person over here? What about these guys? What's going to happen to them? And Jesus says, hey, focus. You follow me. You follow me. So you might say, I have plenty of time. I'll fear God and follow Jesus later. 
Jesus tells a story in Luke 12 about a man who had done very well and decided to take it easy with his life, and Jesus describes God's response to this man. In Luke 12, 20 and 21, he says, But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Where is our focus? Where is our energy? But God surely wouldn't throw me in hell, you might be saying. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells more stories and he explains them. And he explains two of the stories in the same way. Starting in Matthew 13, he says, The Son of Man will send forth his angels. And they will gather out of his kingdom all the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The one who has ears, let him hear. Have you got your ears on? Listen to what he says. So it will be at the end of the age. The angel will come forth and remove the wicked from among the righteous, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I was listening to Adrian Rogers this morning. He says, Man will not primarily be judged for the sin they committed, but for the light they rejected. I got good news and bad news for you. The good news is you're here and you're hearing the truth of the word God preached to you. If you have ears, you're in great shape. The bad news is you're here and you're hearing the truth of the word God preached to you. And if you ignore it and reject it, there go your excuses. You can no longer approach God and say, I didn't know. I never heard. God may say, let's go to the tape. Do not wind up there. Do not. Man was not created for hell, nor hell for man. But was created for Satan and the demons. It is a place of utter darkness and unquenchable fire. We're told in Mark 9 that the worm does not die. Jack Wellman says this. He says, notice it's not just a worm, but their worm does not die. The phrase, the worm never turns, means that the worm will turn on its attacker in the sense of counterattacking, fighting back. But listen to this. This worm Jesus spoke about may be the inner conscience whereby unbelievers suppress the truth. And they will live with that regret forever. Has anybody here ever regretted anything? Do you have anything that's in your heart, in your conscience, that even 10, 20, 40 years ago, you're like, oh man, I hate that I did that, or that I said that, or that I didn't say this. Imagine your worst regret compounded with no hope for it ever going away living with that for the rest of your life, and not even for the rest of your life, but for all of eternity. No soothing balm, no therapist, 
no way to clear your conscience. Is that what that means? Is it a possibility? If we're created to be with God and we're in hell, we're not with God. We're not in that relationship that we are created for. It's in the very core of our being. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Don't be the fool who awakens in eternity only to be cast into the darkness and the fires of hell. Hell does not need to be reserved for you. There is hope. And that hope has a name. And that name is Jesus. Jesus paid the price for sin so you don't have to. The Bible tells us in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If you don't first fear God, you can never enjoy God. In John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That sermon from 1741 that Jonathan Edwards began to preach was never able to finish is described, and, I, and I've heard this sermon. I've heard, you can go on YouTube and hear um, readings of it. You can hear pastors preach through it on their own. There's all kinds of different ways to, um, to find it and to read it or to hear it, watch somebody else um, reenacting it and, and reading it out themselves. Well, I remember when I was in high school, I remember being, um, this sermon being described by my, by my English teacher as what made the impact was it gave people the image of God holding them over the pit of hell by a, a skinny little thread. They began to see themselves ready at any moment to fall over because it is only God who is preserving us. It is only God. And Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. In Romans 3, 23 and 25, we've already read uh, 9 through 20. We skip down a little bit. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody has. All have sinned. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. In Romans 5, 6, and 8, it says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, when we were still powerless, when we were hopeless and helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us this way. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. If you're under the impression that, that let me try to move toward God and clean some things up, and, and when I get to that point where I think that God might accept me, be able to polish me up a little bit, then I'll come to it. Nope. Nope, that's not how it works. You can never get clean enough to approach God on your own. And you can never clean yourself up to the point of God saying, hmm. I can work with that. I got a little bit. Nope. He has to start fresh, and he will do that for you. Romans 6.23 says this, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wages 
is what you earn. You've all seen it on your checks. Wages. I work this many hours, or I'm on salary, or whatever, and I get this much. That is what I've earned. And it says the wages, what you have earned for sin is death. But then you have the gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You earn death through your sin, but eternal life is a gift. One of our Christmas movies that we like to watch is Christmas with the Cranks. And, uh, and they were, uh, there were some neighbors that they didn't get along with very well, um, and, uh, and everything kind of went awry over the course of the holidays, and they were supposed to go on this trip, and they couldn't go. So they take it over to the neighbor across the strip. Uh, I'm not going to give you a spoiler alert because it came out in like 99 or something, so you've had your chance. Um, but they went across the street to these neighbors that they didn't really get along with, and they said, um, said we want you guys to take this cruise. We're not going to be able to go. It's paid for. Everything's taken care of. And he kept coming up with a lot of excuses why he couldn't do it, and, and he wanted to pay him back. And finally, Tim Allen had to say, Walter, it's a gift. Just take it. Take it and enjoy it. It's a gift. You don't have to give me anything for it. You don't owe me for it. I'm not going to collect later. It's a gift. How many of you have ever gotten a Christmas gift that also had a bill in it? Well, my Uncle Linwood once, but that was a whole different issue. Um, in Romans 10, 9 and 10 and 13, it says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be, you will be. You will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess and are saved. In verse 13, it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be. It's a guarantee. It will happen. A few weeks ago, we went to the Chrysler Museum. And as we walked through one of the exhibits, we saw this, uh, and I didn't get to get it together, but, um, but we saw a lady up on a scaffold painting a painting. Now, the painting was already done, but it was a mess. Cracked. It, uh, it was... She was restoring it is what she was doing. And they had a sign up that says, feel free to ask us questions. We're, uh, questions were restoring artwork. So she was restoring this painting, and I asked her about it, and she explained that when someone took the painting down a few hundred years ago, they just rolled it up and put it in storage. But over time, it cracked, and it faded, and it stuck to itself, you know. And she was part of a team trying their best to not only restore it to its original state, but also to improve it so it would be permanently maintained in the future. In the same way, you may not recognize the value of the grace and the mercy that is offered to you today. You may not recognize that value. But the day will come when you will see it. The day will come when you will see it. Even if you don't respond to God's offer because you fully recognize its value, even if you don't respond to it for that, then to respond to the offer because you fear the judgment. God told us about the judgment because it's real and because it's coming. And everybody will have to stand before God. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He's just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
The thief comes only, in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I'm going to finish with this. Three men were out on the prairie, and they saw flames and smoke quickly approaching. As the wind picked up, the flame would spread, and the men were terrified. Two of the men were new to the prairie and had never seen such a sight, and they feared for their lives. They began to panic when the third man, experienced in life on the prairie, pulled out his lighter and lit the grass on fire. What are you doing? We're going to die. Now we have no place to go. The third man answered calmly, Step onto the charred ground with me. The fire cannot come where it's already been. Out of his justice, God has to punish sin. He has to. But if you trust Jesus in the way the Bible says, his sin, your sin is placed on him his righteousness is placed on you. So won't you receive God's mercy today? Let's go ahead and pray.